0: Should we go electric?
1: I think we should go electrified with Toyota.
0: Electrified?
1: Electrified means options.
0: So electrified looks different for everyone.
1: Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified.
0: Uh, Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash zero.
2: Take a look at the list of scenarios in front of you. First, you will select which one you want to tackle. You'll get a briefing, your expert policy advice,
1: and vote on what to do. The experts will not agree among
0: themselves. But your job is to make a decision. You'll have to work... You're listening to audio taken at the Bush Presidential Library and Museum in Dallas, Texas. It's from Decision Points Theater, an interactive exhibit at the museum, more like a video game, really. In it, you can choose one of four crises that Bush experienced in his time as president— Saddam Hussein, the Iraq War troop surge, the financial crisis.
1: The majority of the theater chose Hurricane Katrina and
0: Hurricane Katrina.
2: Levy broke yesterday. Another levy broke today.
1: Fast. no food, no water, no
0: In this scenario, the main decision the audience is supposed to make is whether to send in federal troops with law enforcement power, basically to militarize the city and to declare it in a state of insurrection. And there are actors on screen playing your advisors.
1: This is an emergency. We need to send federal troops in right away.
0: I mean... Yeah.
1: The city's resources are overwhelmed. The police cannot cope with the crisis, and Americans are facing
2: lawlessness and chaos.
0: News alerts break in as a fake advisors talk, hyping up the tension.
2: It's getting increasingly chaotic in New Orleans. The city's homeland security chief says there are gangs of armed men moving around the city.
0: Gangs, snipers, lawlessness. Sitting in the simulation, You might be forgiven if you thought the flood wasn't the main problem. There are snipers taking shots at medevac helicopters. They say it's simply too dangerous to go out there. The whole thing is designed to put you in a pressure cooker. You're bombarded with information. Images of chaos fill the screen. You have to make a decision. Do you federalize the response? Do you send armed troops in? Do you send food to the convention center?
1: Time's up. It's time to make a decision.
0: And then... Regardless of what you picked, the president comes on to tell you what he decided.
1: When Hurricane Katrina flooded New Orleans in 2005, I chose to send in federal troops without law enforcement authority. It became clear during the crisis that local and state officials were overwhelmed and that the governor of the state was not going to relinquish authority to the federal government. So I sent 7,000 federal
2: troops into New Orleans but did not give them the ability to act as law enforcement officers. I decided that sending in federal troops with diminished authority was better than sending in no federal troops at all. It was what
1: the crisis required, and the troops helped restore order in the city.
0: And that's pretty much it. It's a strange exhibit but mostly for what it doesn't say. It doesn't talk about the fallout from Katrina, how his inaction became part of his legacy. In his book, Decision Points, the president does go a bit further than the exhibit does. He has a whole chapter on Katrina. In it, he says that the fallout from the storm haunted his second term, that accusations of racism during Katrina were the low point of his presidency. He also writes, quote, the problem was not that I made the wrong decisions. It was that I took too long to decide. I wanted to ask him about all this, about what taking accountability for the disaster should look like, and whether he'd felt he'd done it. The note I got back read, quote, President Bush is enjoying retirement and is not currently participating in interviews. We made multiple requests to his chief of staff, Andy Card, and to his Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff. Neither of them responded. Many of the other officials who might be able to give some explanation of what went wrong aren't available to talk. Governor Blanco died a few days before the 14th anniversary of the storm in 2019. I wrote letters to former Mayor Ray Nagin. He's in federal prison in Texas on corruption charges. He never wrote back. But there is one government official who wanted to talk.
1: How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Good. Michael Brown. Man, new
0: Michael Brown, better known as Brownie. Uh,
1: again, I, I want to thank you all
2: for—and Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job.
1: <laughs> yeah, Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job or whatever. And
0: slaps me in the gut, and I think, shit. Michael was head of FEMA when Katrina hit. He was eager to talk, but he had one condition— He didn't want to do this interview over the phone. He wanted to talk in person. I like the challenge. The challenge? You think I'm going to roast you here?
1: No. I'm here. I'm here for the challenge of it. Mm -hmm. And to be brutally honest, too, I'm here because you can never correct the record enough because the narrative is out there. You've done your homework. You've Googled my name. You know the stories that are out there. You and I are going to do this face-to-face. Part 8,
0: The Wake. Michael Brown has an interesting resume. I'll give you the highlights. He grew up in small-town Oklahoma, Tornado Alley. He served on the city council, went to law school, had an unsuccessful run for Congress. Then he got another gig, Commissioner of the International Arabian Horse Association, He says they wanted an outsider to come in and deal with corruption. And if you're wondering what corruption looks like in the Arabian horse breeding world, I was wondering the same thing. Are you ready for this? Let's go. They perform
1: cosmetic surgery on the horse. Like liposuction? Liposuction. You change the color and the shape of the eyeballs. You make it the most perfect horse you can imagine.
0: Wow, so it's like an Instagram horse. Bingo. So anyway, Michael joined the Horse Association. He had no experience with horses, but Michael Brown likes a challenge. I'll tell you what my wife
1: says, and I think she's absolutely— this is hard for me to admit, but I think she's right. I like to push the
0: envelope. I like—and I, I, sometimes I push it too far. He spent about a decade at the Horse Association, but eventually he chose to leave. He says the breeders didn't like him challenging them. The next bullet point on the resume is FEMA. After George W. Bush became president, he named his former campaign manager and chief of staff, Joe Albaugh, as director of FEMA. Joe's an Oklahoma guy, too. He'd known Michael since college. When Joe needed a right-hand man, he gave Michael a call. Joe said, I need somebody I can trust. So Michael became FEMA's general counsel. But after 9-11, Congress created the Department of Homeland Security and put FEMA under it. That meant the FEMA had now reported to DHS, not the president. After that, Joe Albaugh left, and Michael Brown became director, in charge of the whole thing. So, I got this burr in my saddle that we're going to do freaking catastrophic disaster planning. The first disaster they planned for was the big one in New Orleans. A year before Katrina, FEMA ran a role-playing exercise to try to figure out what would happen if a Category 3 hurricane hit the city. They came up with some useful plans, but Michael thought overall the whole thing was a failure. Coordination between different layers of local, state, and national actors just didn't exist. He was also worried about FEMA being under DHS. He thought too much bureaucracy was going to slow down FEMA's ability to respond to disasters and he thought DHS's focus on terrorism was overshadowing FEMA's mission. He says he tried to bring this concern to the president. One day, he was riding with Bush in his limo. He gave it a shot. Mr. President, I'm really concerned about DHS and
1: kind of the culture and stuff. We need to change. And before I could finish, he looked at me and said, I've already fixed that. And he said it in such a way that I knew. Okay,
0: and that was it. I'm not going to push this. So, but you're a you're a guy who pushes the envelope. You listen and challenge. Why not listen and challenge a president on this?
1: Have you ever sat in the limo with the most powerful man in the world?
0: Can't say I have.
1: And he turns to you, and he sternly tells you, "I have fixed that."
0: Yeah. I don't know what it's like to be in a limo with the president, and Michael Brown does. That's why I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to know what it was like that week, what the people in charge were thinking and doing. Kanye West and plenty other people had figured that officials just didn't care about black people. But was that true? Even if it wasn't, why didn't they do more to help people? How could they have seen people suffering at the convention center and not even acknowledge they were there. So I asked Michael Brown to walk me through the week, decision by decision, starting with the moment Katrina crossed over Southern Florida and started heading toward New Orleans. That's when I start to panic.
1: You start panicking. I do, I start to panic.
0: It's going to be my worst fear.
1: I'm worried because I know if it goes up the mouth of the Mississippi and hits New Orleans, I know that people are going to die, or likely to die. And I know the response is going to be, not the best it can be. So, yes, I'm worried about that. But I'm also worried that if this is truly the worst that it can be, I know it's a disaster for me personally. Why? Who's, who's going to get the blame?
0: Feces rolls downhill. Michael was desperate. As the storm approached, he sent emails with jokes about wanting to resign. He wanted everyone to evacuate the city, but he couldn't make the call. Mayor Ray Nagin had to, and he was dragging his feet. So, in conference calls with officials and through the media, Michael tried to scare everyone into action with the worst case scenarios. In your mind, what was the worst thing? The levees would break.
1: My press secretary was instructed you find every freaking outlet that I can talk to so that I can tell them that I think this is going to be really bad and that you need to get the hell out of Dodge. You told them the levees are going to breach? No, I didn't. No, no I talked I There's a fine line between I'm never going to say to somebody, I think the levees are going to breach. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to panic
0: people. Would panic not have been a little bit... A little bit of panic been useful in this case. In, in hindsight, yeah. In hindsight, you know, now, now you're asking me to
1: look backward.
0: Well, that's and, the whole show.
1: <laughs> but looking backward, I might have, I might have said,
0: I fear the levees could break. By Saturday morning, the mayor and the governor still hadn't called for a mandatory evacuation, so Michael called the president. He asked Bush to put pressure on local officials. Bush made the call, and Nagin and Blanco did eventually call that evacuation on Sunday. Most of the city left, and at least some of that's due to Michael Brown. But the people left behind were gonna need somewhere to go. Mayor Nagin wanted that place to be the Superdome, and Michael hated that plan. I threw
1: a fit on the conference call because I'm I'm holding this engineering report that says, the dome can't withstand a category three, let alone a category five that you know the the roof's going to be blown off it's it's don't do this, don't do it, but then when he announced that he was going to do it then then I ordered supplies in
0: well that's the so the if you have an engineering report that says this building can't withstand the storm that's coming and people are going there, should you have stopped them from going there what's what's the role because I guess the worst case didn't happen, right? No, the worst case did
1: happen. Think about the shock of a single mother with a baby who, for whatever reason, not judgmental, for whatever reason, didn't evacuate. But here's that she can go to the Superdome and be safe because that's what the mayor told them. If she takes her baby and she goes there, there's power for a little bit, and then it goes dark, and then the roof blows off. And now the storm's blowing in. And I'm not going to accept responsibility for that. Because I told, I told that governor, and I told that mayor, this engineering report says,
0: do not
1: do this. Point now, taken. Your, but your oh, question yeah. I'm, is. I'm asking. Why didn't I do something? Well, inhabiting that woman's mind, right? Right. She Let me ask told you, this thing. I'm curious. hmm what would you have had me
0: do? Well, I guess, the, 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 you have access to the most powerful person in the world. Point taken.
1: I've never been asked this question, and I've never thought about this. I could have called Bush back and said, "I need you to go on TV." and tell people, don't go to the Superdome. The problem with that is I think through it. What do I tell them to do? What do I tell the president to tell them to do? Because it's too late to evacuate. Do you see the conundrum?
0: I do see the conundrum. Where else were people going to go? Still, even acknowledging that, and how difficult all the decisions were after Katrina, I kept wondering, why couldn't we just get stuff done? Why couldn't the people leading the response cut through the red tape? Why couldn't they use the most powerful bully pulpit in the world to move people and supplies? Those all became even more pressing concerns when people started going to the convention center. Three days after the storm, DHS Secretary Michael Chertoff went on NPR. He said he wasn't even aware of the thousands of people who had gathered there. In three different interviews that same day, Michael Brown said he'd just learned about
2: it. Sir, you're not telling me you just learned that the folks at the convention center didn't
0: have food and water until today, are you? You had no idea they were completely cut off?
1: Paula, the federal government did not even know about the convention
0: center people until today. How could so many people have missed that people were... Thousands of people were at the biggest building outside the Superdome in the city. We didn't. Go on. We knew they were there. When was this? So I'm trying to, how how long do you know after the storm? I knew immediately. I knew
1: immediately. Immediately. I I, I knew that night that people had broken into the convention center. The thing about the convention center that drives me nuts is the Ted Koppel and who else? I did like three interviews in a row where I said, we just learned about the convention center. Well, in my head, we had just learned about the convention center. But having just learned about the convention center was actually like 36 hours ago. Mm. It wasn't just then. And and right, I'm not criticizing. In my head, having not slept,
0: yes, we just learned about it. So explain to me, as if I'm a person in the convention center, if I get there Tuesday, explain to me why there's no real federal presence until Thursday, Friday.
1: There is no explanation for it other than, I think by that point, the system is overwhelmed. I just think we have this unrealistic expectation that this massive federal bureaucracy can just instantaneously do stuff, and it just cannot.
0: Where the rubber meets the road for me is, what is unreasonable here? Is it—I is it, mean, maybe it is unreasonable to get a truck full of MREs in there, but is it unreasonable to, to for somebody to come and say, we see you're here? Or we're going to come get you? You can walk from the Superdome to the convention center. That nobody walked or tried to make it in the thirty-six hours. Like that, just seems like we're acting like this is a. It's inexcusable. An
1: ocean. I, well, I know, but but when it comes to food and supplies, it is kind of an ocean.
0: Well, I'm not. not I'm, I'm right. just saying the acknowledgement but, piece. Like right. the, we're going to come. I get think.
1: You. I think the acknowledgement piece. I think you're right. I think you're right on that one. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's a great lesson to be learned. Is we always talk about. In the corporate world, in government, what is communication, 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 right? Number one thing you're supposed to do. I don't think we did a very good job of it. I think we were so um, in our own heads about the response that when it came to things like press relations, media relations, acknowledgements as you call them,
0: I think we completely dropped the ball. How much of a part of your job is that? People being informed and having the information needed to make decisions—is that not a major part of, say, the FEMA director's job? Yes. If they didn't get it, was that a failure on your part?
1: Absolutely. I think the failure to use the media and to do the kinds of things that you're talking about—that I I—I th- like your word acknowledgement. Have you ever? Apologize? What do you want me to apologize for?
0: Well, you said you made mistakes.
1: Yeah. Isn't that isn't that an apology?
0: I guess. I mean, are,
1: you want, I'm sorry I made these mistakes?
0: I don't know. I, I, I'm just asking if, if you feel like that's well, no, an apology. No, that's no, no, I,
1: no, I just, I, just yeah. I, I find that fascinating because um, clearly— by admitting your mistakes, you're telling the world—I mean, you're, you're you're opening the kimono up to the world and saying, you know what, I, I messed up this, 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 and this. I did this, this, and this right. Your conclusion then is, okay, at the end of that line of good and bad, make an apology.
0: I think— The part of an apology for me is I did X, Y, and Z bad. I see how it contributed to the suffering in your life, and I acknowledge that. We did that.
1: At least from my perspective, I thought we did that.
0: Mm -hmm. You don't seem convinced. The difficulty I'm having is when we talk about the convention center especially we have a reason we talked to a a, a girl who's 14 then who thought she was going to die right right and you think you're going to die and there was somebody there who could have prevented at least that feeling which is a terrible thing for a teenager to feel right the apology for me would be We made mistakes. We understand that it made you feel abandoned. Here's how we plan to make sure it doesn't happen again. I'm with you
1: all the way up to here's how we plan to make sure it doesn't happen again. Which I have no control over. Now, if she, need, if she needs somebody to say, I'm sorry, I'll say that to her. I'm sorry that you felt that way, and I'm sorry that we didn't do what we could have done to take away that fear. I would also, though, talk to her about, I don't think we could take your fear away. You, you may have found it comforting for a moment, But considering how disaster response works, I don't want to give her a false hope that somewhere in the future, maybe not her in particular, that this is going to to happen again. It's the nature of the beast.
0: The woman I'm referring to, her name is Leanne, by the way. Hi, Leanne.
1: Before we we leave that, Mm -hmm. if I can get Americans to think about risk and tell them honestly that when that proverbial feces hits the fan, you may be fearful for your life. And there's nothing that anybody can do about that. The government is not going to be there the minute it happens. And it may not be there for a day, depending on how bad it is. So you tell Leanne I'm sorry, but you tell Leanne that Her responsibility is to understand the nature of the risk where she lives and to be prepared for it knowing that somebody's not going to come, the the shining knight in armor is not going to come and rescue her when that fear sets in.
0: You know, we've interviewed quite a few people and it, it seems that the experience of being... Of of a delay, of not having help come when you think it's going to come, of having a, that that manifests as betrayal, right? Mm-hmm, right? And I think what we saw, with lots of people saw, that betrayal along the lines of the ways they'd been betrayed before, yeah, and so you got right. a black city, yeah, and they experience that betrayal as racism, right, right? How do you process that? I know what's in my heart,
1: and in my heart, I did not. I don't. I not did not, I do not. I, w- I was raised by two incredible parents to see people as humans. And while I understand, to the best that I can as a, as, as a Caucasian, while I understand the plight of people in the Lower Ninth Ward or people that, that were, are predominantly black, It angers me when when people keep bringing up racism. There was there was there was not one decision, not one movement, not there was nothing, not a scintilla of of anything, of racism in what me my staff or the people that are the career civil servants of FEMA did that was based on race. And I find it offensive. I'm not saying I find it offensive that you bring it up. I find it offensive that there are people out there who want to think that. Because it's just
0: not true. I think if we're continuing this exercise of of inhabiting these people you've talked to, of the stories of folks who went through this, just wondering if you might understand why somebody who has all these pieces of evidence. Oh, of course
1: I understand. Mm-hmm. Oh, trust yeah. me. I
0: understand it. Okay.
1: Do, do I think that systemic racism exists in this country? You'd be naive not to think so. You and I are both. You're a black man. I'm a white man. We both know bigots. I hope none of our friends, but we both know bigoted people. We both know racist people.
0: One of the ways that we have seen people talk about how they saw racism or bias manifest was in the descriptions of crime or oh, yeah. looting and all that stuff oh, yeah. happening during Katrina. Oh. In your book, you said it was a situation that sometimes seemed akin to going to a zoo, opening all the cages and telling the predator they were on the honor system. Now, you know... It seems in your book you were lamenting that Louisiana didn't have a shoot-to-kill order or that they weren't issuing some of the hardline denunciations of looters. How do you reconcile that with, essentially, we know a lot of the reports were racially biased, or they, they weren't really, we didn't have confirmation.
1: We heard all sorts of rumors, rapes, murders, muggings, everything. And I, I could never, get good ground-based knowledge of what was going on because the New Orleans Police Department had utterly disintegrated, just disintegrated. But yes, I do believe if you're looting in a disaster area to feed your family, I don't care. I'd do the same thing. You and I both would. We're going to do whatever it takes. If you're looting in a disaster or in a riot or whatever to grab a TV, I don't think necessarily you should lose your life. But there ought to be consequences. What kind of consequences? Grab them and throw their ass in
0: jail. Just backing up, though, if if, if what I see as a, as a black guy yeah. who has, you know— um, had a couple run ins with the law, we'll say. <laughs> what I see here is, and I can't help but see it as a confirmation of of things that I have suspected to be true, right? Which is mm-hmm. which is you 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 see the moment the lights go out somewhere, and yeah, you have crime that is real, but you also have people using this as an opportunity to paint a whole city of black people as being violent and being uniquely criminal the you know, folks in the news saying that based on these reports these folks are sort of deserving of being shot on sight and that, i mean i think that's what the, like in your book you were kind of you're saying they were soft yeah they were they were soft but i don't think you can extract
1: i don't think you can extrapolate let's shoot them on sight but that was what
0: that haley barber yeah. said we're going to shoot them on sight haley barber
1: said they're going to shoot them on sight Michael Brown didn't say we're going to shoot them on site. You praised Haley Barber in the book. Haley Barber did a
0: fantastic job of
1: responding to the disaster.
0: Yes. Responding by saying they were going to shoot people on site. My
1: general response to Haley Barber and to Bob Riley is they did a fantastic job. I'm not going to justify Haley Barber's shoot to kill. I'm not going to justify that.
0: I spent six hours with Michael Brown. He was generous, and he answered every question. The show's producers, Alvin and Catherine, kept asking if we wanted to take a break, get some coffee. He wouldn't. Well, let us know
1: because we can take No, 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 we can no. Get no, some food. No, we? no, no. I, I,
0: I. As long as Van's willing to keep going, I'm willing to keep going. I'm here. He admitted to getting some stuff wrong, but it seemed like it was harder for him to talk about responsibility beyond that. You in 2015. You you wrote the Politico article about stop blaming you. Yeah. Seems like you've admitted to a lot of things we should blame you for today. Yeah, but
1: stop blaming me. Did I make mistakes? Absolutely. Is everything that went wrong in Katrina my fault? Not in
0: the least. He wasn't going to take all the blame for Katrina. And if he sounds overly defiant about it, I think it's because he has a case to make. He really was made a scapegoat. Two weeks after the storm, after the heck-of-a-job brownie comment and lots of negative media coverage, he resigned. Even after he was gone, FEMA struggled to manage the response. There were racial disparities in aid money and in who got help at all. Poor folks got stuck with trailers full of formaldehyde. Some didn't get trailers at all. Those things were out of Michael Brown's control, but they still contributed to how he was painted, incompetent at best, an avatar of racist indifference at worst. It's a perception he hasn't really shaken. He is still the face of the failure of Katrina, and it's not like he gets a presidential library to wash away his sins.
1: I joke with my kids. You know, your dad, his obituary was never going to be in the New York Times. Oh, but it will be now. And, it will, and, and and the New York Times headline will be, heck of a job, Brownie dies at the age of
0: 92. We had a long day talking. Our producers gave the signal to wrap everything up. But Michael tried to explain himself one more time. I, and I know these microphones are still on. Yeah. Um,
1: I, th- I, I think the thing that has thrown me the greatest loop in this curveball is the whole apology thing. I mean I understand it from another person's perspective. I totally get that. I struggle with and I know you you're not going to answer the question. But it's like
0: what do people want me to apologize for? The paradox of Michael Brown seems to be this. All of his efforts to defend himself to not be made a scapegoat, they seemed to make it impossible for him to perform empathy, to understand why an apology from him might mean something. And maybe that's a, a blind spot of mine. Very well could be. Either a blind spot or an unwillingness. Maybe we should have known that we weren't going to get that from Michael Brown. There wasn't going to be an easy answer no matter how long we talked. We were just asking him the same question, in different ways I think what I'm asking is I'm wondering if your experience if how much you think about the experience of people who went through it it sounds like you did, of course you do you were there um, but do you I'm, relate to or understand that experience do you feel a kind of empathy with it or indignance on their behalf
1: I get real emotional about this and I get emotional about it because um, when you're when you're portrayed if if you I had dinner with a friend last night telling me about this interview and it and I told him that you know I'm not nervous about it but i'm I'm really curious about the the line of questioning and and the the tone of the questioning and everything and his comment to me was, this is somebody I've known for ages, just be the caring person that you are. And the thing that drives me The thing the thing that bothers me <clears throat> the thing that bothers me uh, the most are that people think I don't care.
0: Thank you so much. I wasn't going to do- This is Jeffrey Goldberg. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. I want to tell you a little bit about our magazine. For 163 years, The Atlantic has been the magazine of the American idea and the American experiment. Our journalists have written about America's great successes, its devastating failures, and its unique challenges. Our journalism is rigorous, fair, comprehensive, and driven by deep moral urgency. I hope you see in Floodlines all of these characteristics— and I hope that you will want even more Atlantic journalism in your lives. You can gain unlimited access to all of the Atlantic's great stories by subscribing. Go to the Atlantic.com support us to learn more. That's theAtlantic.com slash support us. Thank you.
1: Hey. How are you?
0: Leanne's still out in New Orleans East now. She lives by the levee on the lake with her boyfriend and her daughter. Alvin and I went out to visit her. She worked so many double shifts that we had trouble fitting in her schedule. But we managed. So, Leanne, mm-hmm. we are back. Yes. Yeah, you're probably sick of us.
2: <laughs> I see y'all in a minute.
0: We sat and talked about the city, how you can still see Katrina in some places what
2: life would be like if it hadn't happened. Oh, my God. I think about that all the time. All the time. I think it would be better. I would have graduated from Gilbert Academy, the top of my class. I know I would have. I know they would have helped me with college applications and everything. I don't know. It's like after Katrina, I just had this drive, like, before Katrina. Like, I just had my whole... I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the first person to go to college. I'm going to graduate from college. Like, I just had this drive, this this just bright light, and it's just like, it's just after Katrina, It's just dim, then, dim, dim.
0: Has anybody ever apologized to you? No. No? No. <laughs> no. What would you do if somebody did? If if somebody, I don't know, from, like, the top came down and said, I'm sorry for what
2: happened. Sorry for what, like, came down from the top and said, I'm sorry for what happened to to you at Katrina and this and that and Mm da-da-da. After 14 years. I wouldn't even really care to hear it.
0: Do you know um, Michael Brown? Brownie, the the chief of FEMA, Brownie, heck of a job, Brownie.
2: Oh, he the one with the glasses. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: You heard about uh-huh. him? What you think about him?
2: It's like a lot of people did not know what they were doing. Like they was confused. How you get a job like that and you don't know what you're doing? The same with President Bush. You he didn't even know what to do. How you somebody President You can't even handle a national disaster, but you want oversee a country. First stop, we asked him about
0: the convention center and about why they couldn't get there. And what do you say? He talked about some of it, and we kind of wanted to let you listen to it and see what you made of it.
2: Oh my God! Let me hear this. <laughs> let me. All
0: right. All right. We gave her some headphones and sat there while she listened.
2: Oh, he sounds cocky. In my head, it's clear He's... that those were mistakes. If she, need, if she needs something <laughs> to say, Oh, my God, it's yo.
0: So what'd you think?
2: Oh, my God. When he said my name, it's just like, oh, my God. I don't know. Like him, like, talking directly to me, like, saying that he's sorry. It's just like something just came over me. Like, what the hell? Like, he talking to me. I don't know.
0: I don't know either. <laughs> That's We didn't know what to make of it.
2: I feel like. It's crazy. Like I'm like it don't I don't care about no apology. But y'all too see y'all, I'ma get y'all. <laughs> like you know him saying, Liang, you know, I'm sorry, Liang, I'm sorry. Like he right here telling me, I'm sorry. I'ma get y'all too. <laughs> like the part that he when he was saying my name and talking to me made me feel like I matter.
0: Leanne has had to wonder in these last 15 years why all this happened. If the reason she got screwed was because someone was racist or mean or incompetent or just didn't care about people like her. She's had to wonder if the people in power ever saw her at all. Michael Brown feels like he's a scapegoat. When he dies, he'll be the Katrina guy. And maybe that's not fair. But even being a scapegoat means that people know who you are. That you mattered. That's crazy.
2: What are you doing now? He's a uh, Hope right. not over from dealing with nothing with no national disasters. And he started talking, I was like, oh my God, just shut up. Why are you talking? Cause he was just when he first came on, like, what am I saying I'm sorry for? Like, Rain make me understand what I'm saying I'm sorry for. Then I mean I'm admitting that I did something wrong. So you don't feel like you did nothing wrong? But tell the ad that you know, next time it's not gonna be her knight in shining armor coming and coming rescue her and all that. What's all that was for? Like, why would you say that? Yeah, instead of having them up treat us like dogs with guns, they should have been down there trying to help us to go get. Ain't they trained for that all that stuff to go try to go get food and stuff like that? Why they weren't doing that? But they weren't about putting guns on us. Was that part of the plan? They really had a shitty plan, you know what I really after Katrina is when I really started to notice that I'm black in
0: America, yeah, I think actually, for me, I was all up in North Carolina, and Katrina was the first time I saw it, right somewhere else,
2: right, yeah. yeah. That was crazy. I just... Saw
0: race matter in like a way that was... Yeah. It, it, yeah. I'd seen... I knew people who were racist. Like <laughs> my whole life I'd seen... you know, I, I grew up with mostly black folks, but I right. knew a couple of white people who had the Confederate flag or whatever. But like yeah. Katrina was the first time I saw something happen to a whole group of people who looked like me. And it was because they looked like me. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah, That was crazy. I'm like, they're going to kill us because we black? That don't make no sense. We refugees. Nobody not coming. You look around, you just see black people, babies, everybody just crying. They won't help. And this man, Bush, he telling us that they coming. I don't understand. Oh, my God. I just don't understand it.
0: Yeah, it's been a long time since Katrina. Lots of people don't really like talking about the day the levees broke. And I get that. They want to move on. They don't want some out-of-town journalist asking them over and over again about a bad time in their lives. There are good things now. There are great things. And we should talk about them. After the Danziger Bridge shootings, the family sued the department and revealed their cover-up. Their fight helped advance department-wide criminal justice reforms. In 2018, the city had a record low of four shootings by police officers. There's new businesses, a shiny new airport, a cool scene for young people and tourists. Every day, life in New Orleans defies all the people who said it shouldn't come back or couldn't come back. But I don't know if I would call that recovery. Recovery means that things are back to normal. But things ain't back to normal.
2: They're just different. I'm just working paycheck to paycheck. And it's crazy because I'm doing that, but I still, you know, have enough to help my mom out, you know? And I just, I don't know, but I make a way.
0: After we were done talking, Leanne took us out to the levee by her place. It's right across the street from her apartment. She comes out here with her friends and her daughter to let loose.
2: Me and my girls, we come sit up here with the kids, and they run up and down, and we get some seafood and daiquiri, and we sit up here.
0: You walk up a hill and up to a fence, and you can look out over the lake. And when you look at this levee, what
2: do you see? Our enemy. We're surrounded by water. We live in a bowl. It's beautiful, but also deadly. This is what can destroy my city. This is what destroyed my city. I don't think New Orleans will be here years to come. I'm just enjoying it while we're still here. But my daughter's kids and their kids probably not going to be able to enjoy the same thing. Eventually, it's not going to be here. And when I just look at it, it makes me really think about that we're not going to be here that long. It's crazy. There's nowhere in the world I'd rather be than here. I love it. It's my home. It's my home. I love New Orleans. I done been to Arizona, Texas, Mississippi after Katrina. Nothing like New Orleans. Nothing like New Orleans.
0: Toni Morrison once said, all water has a perfect memory and is forever trying to get back to where it was. She was talking about the Mississippi River. People might try to forget the past, but maybe the water remembers as it laps away at the wetlands. Maybe it remembers as it rises a little higher and swallows more and more communities on the coast. Maybe it remembers as the levees sink a little more. Maybe the water is waiting to betray us again, because to betray also means to expose the truth.
1: ...in and around Houston. ...a massive amount of energy that's being deflated from California's deadliest... Wildfires ...and both destructed... ...now merging into one degrees. ...just destruction as far as the eye ...100% of Puerto Rico now without power... ...the mayor of San Juan now
2: saying people are starting to die. It brings me back uh, to the 1927 flood. When the flood came, it was poor folks and black folks.
0: In 1856, Last Island, Louisiana, was destroyed. It was cleaved by the hurricane, broken into pieces, and then slowly reclaimed by the salt and the waves. You wouldn't know now that it was a vacation spot, that the sons and daughters of the American slavocracy had tempted fate there, or that a man named Richard had tried to warn them about what was coming. I think I figured out why I keep thinking about Richard. It's because he didn't have the luxury of denial. He saw clearly what the slave owners tried to ignore. We are all vulnerable, and the past will always find its way back to us.
2: Call for being another Katrina coming. My daughter had to go through what I went through, getting taken from her friends, living here, living there. So I gonna be in the same position my mom and dad was in. So, you know, still to this day, I don't know how they felt as parents. talked Oh, I'm telling you, we just kind of swept it under the rug for 14 years. We never really talked, like, to each other. Like, well, Leah, how you feel about uh, mom? How you feeling, sis Katrina? Uh, are you doing fine? None of that. Do you feel like after this, maybe you will? After we all leave, I'm going to call my mom. Because we never asked each other. I'm going to go call my Bible on the phone, tell her I love her, and I'm going to just ask her. you let me know how that call goes? Yeah.
0: We walked back across the street, and Leanne went home. Bloodlines is a production of The Atlantic. The show was reported and produced by me and Alvin Mellon. Our executive producer is Catherine Wells. Katie Reckdahl is our editorial advisor. Archival production and research by Kevin Townsend. Editing by Scott Stossel. Production assistance from Emily Gottschalk-Marconi, Miles Poydras, and Kayla Filo. Fact-checking by William Brennan. Music by Christian Scott Atunde ajua and Anthony Braxton. Sound design, mix, and additional music by David Herman. Art direction by Paul Spella. We are very much indebted to a group of first listeners who made this project better with their notes and guidance. Thanks to Adrian LaFrance, Jeffrey Goldberg, David Dennis Jr., Hannah Georges, Clint Smith, and Shan Wang. Special thanks to Eve Abrams, Brett Anderson, Tina Antolini, Roy Arago, Earl Barthay Jr., Julie Bogan Rachel Brunman Douglas Brinkley Sarah Broom Amy Castanell, Robert Green Ronnie Green Leslie Harris Jack Hitt Andy Horwitz Mary Howell Pam Jenkins Pablo Johnson Ashley Jones Natalie Jordy Ronald Lewis Yvonne Loisel Travis Lux John McQuaid Richard M. Mazel Jr. Diane Newman Garrett Pittman, Jonathan Reynolds, Robert Ricks, Bruce Shapiro, Leona Tate, Eve Tro, Eric Waters, Kalamu Yasalam, WWNO, WWL, and the Louisiana Division City Archives, the New Orleans Public Library. If you want to support journalism like this, the best way to do it is with a subscription to The Atlantic. Visit theatlantic.com slash support us that's s-u-p-p-o-r-t-u-s thanks for listening